Uh, the next Bible reading is uh, from Luke chapter 4, verses 21 to 30, and you can find it on the Pew Bibles, uh, if you wish to follow it, on page 727. So that's Luke 4, verses 21 to 30. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you have done in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Sarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy, in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. The third reading is from Titus, Titus 2, 11 to 15, on page 844. <clears throat> For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to, for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. There we go. Um, I forgot to mention that you can sign up if you want to come to our place for a barbecue on Australia Day. So a good old Aussie barbecue. If you, if you want to come, please um, chat with me or Jen or put your name on the list there just so we know how many people are coming. And uh, we'll, we'll do on Australia Day what Australians enjoy the most, and that is having some good 
fellowship and friendship around a barbie. So um, please come if you're able to. Now let me just pray as we um, reflect on those words that Russell read to us. They're uh, so concise and deep and profound as we read the word of God. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you do speak to us today. We thank you that your word is alive and active by your Holy Spirit. And we ask you, Lord, to give us receptive hearts today and uh, help us to, to have the will and desire to put into practice the things that, that you uh, teach us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> well, way back in my university days, I um, was driving a Morris 1100, such a powerful little beast. <laughs> and um, I had a couple of friends who were car sharing who were with me on this day and we pulled out of the car park at the uni and I looked in the rear vision mirror and there's a car come pulling out from the other side. You know how that happens. So I stopped expecting him to stop. He just kept coming and ran into me. Uh, hit me kind of in the... Uh, the boot area of the car and, and just made this ding. So I got out of the car, so did the two friends who were with me. Um, the other guy got out of the car and we thought, you know, I thought, we'll sort this out. And he said to me, you ran into me. <laughs> and I had a couple of friends there who said, no, we were actually stationary. And he said, no, you ran into me. And he, he argued the point and then he said, you're not going to get a cent out of me, you know. Now, that was a bit stressful. I mean, it was a ding in an old car. Um, but the thing that stressed me the most was this guy was wearing black pants, a white shirt, two crosses on either side of his collar. And he was uh, studying maths teaching uh, for some church school or some uh, whatever. So I had only been a Christian for a short time. I just thought that that was wrong. Just thought that that was, that was a very bad thing. Um, but, you know, what can you do? Well, I tell that story by way of contrast, really, because I want to ask you, would you like to be a part of a church that produces Christians who are eager to do what is right, even if it costs? Are you keen to be a part of a church that produces Christians who are eager to do what is right? If you are, you're in good company. That's certainly the church that I would like to be a part of and it's the church that Paul wanted Titus and um, the, the new Christians on Crete to be a part of. If you've been with us, we've been following this story uh, of the relationship between Paul and Titus. They went to Crete uh, conducted a, um, a kind of mission as they walked through the different villages on the island, preaching the gospel, people were converted. Paul kind of kept going and went from Crete to mainland Greece to Nicopolis uh, for the winter. Um, you know, an, an older man wanting to rest, I can appreciate that. <laughs> and he left young Titus to do all the work of establishing the churches. Well, he told him exactly what he wanted him to do. 
And uh, what was it that he told him? Well, it, it really comes in the very first verse of the first chapter of this letter, where Paul says um, he is a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So this is Paul's whole persona. This is how he sees himself. He's the apostle of Jesus Christ to God's people, to the elect, in order that they may have a knowledge of the truth which will lead to godly behaviour. So Paul is writing uh, to Titus to strengthen and increase the faith of the believers and their knowledge which will lead to them living a life of godliness will lead to them living a life that is uh, reflecting God's glory. So what was the plan in order to do that? What was the plan that Titus was to follow that would produce Christians living a life of godliness, uh, a life of doing what is right and pleasing to God? Again, we've looked at this in chapter 1, where Paul reminds Titus of their strategy he says, finish the work, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the key to a church growing in godliness is to have the right people in positions of leadership. Now, think of your ideal rector. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think, well... He must have the right training at the right theological college. In Sydney Diocese, it, it's helpful to come from the right family. Uh, my wife is, has an uncle who's an archdeacon. <laughs> you need to have the right connections, having been trained at the right church, uh, maybe have a further degree so that you're a little bit more distinguished like the Reverend Doctor or something like that. Well, what is your picture? And how does that line up with what Paul says are the credentials for a church leader? Listen to what he says to Titus in verse one, sorry, chapter 1, verse 7. He says, For an overseer, that's a leader of the church, as God's steward, must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Notice the difference. When we think of what the, the um, you know, ideal leader of a church would be like, we think of training, you know, what theological college they've been to, what credentials they have, who they've worked with, all of those kind of things. But when Paul says to Titus, pick leaders, he says pick people who are people of integrity, people whose godliness is on show, people who are um, prepared to be changed and, and to grow in godliness because of the word of God. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? You might say, oh, well, okay, we know for next time. Um, but I want to say these are the qualities 
that I value and that I struggle with. And, you know, if you are in a position of leadership in the family or anywhere, I think that you would probably have some of the same experiences. These are the qualities that we want to work on in our lives that reflect a life of faith in Jesus Christ, that reflect growth in our Christian faith as we see the fruit of Christian living. God, I believe, has called me to be a leader and a leader of this church. And my greatest desire is to grow in godliness. Now, you can tell me my shortfallings. Uh, I'm aware of them, but I want to say, uh, I, I really think that it is so easy for us to brush over the things, the areas where, where, we, are, where we fall short, and um, you know, to give a better picture of ourselves to ourselves than we really should. And as I've read this through, I've been challenged this week to think about my own life and godliness. And I think it's a good challenge for all of us because if you're like me, uh, most of the time we think we're pretty good and um, we need to take check and to hear what the scriptures have to say and you notice that it's, it's knowledge which leads to godliness. It's knowledge which leads to godliness. Knowledge on its own will not do it. It's not... Um, you know, the, the number of theological books that you have in your library, it is how you apply the knowledge that you have now in order to live a godly life. Uh, this is quite different to our culture. Our culture says that the idea of leadership um, elevates knowledge, elevates expertise, um, elevates the person who is able to get results, particularly financial results, um, and, and, and prove that, um, you know, that that is the important thing. It doesn't matter so much about what you do in the rest of your life. But that's really kind of fallen apart, hasn't it? Because we realise that what you do in the rest of your life impacts what you do at work. And those people who have been shown to be quite successful uh, in the world's eyes in work have also shown themselves to be quite unethical in so many areas. So the world holds up this picture of the efficient, effective leader who gets results. The church holds up the idea of the leader who uh, is a person of integrity. Who is, a, who is a godly person. Men and women who are upright, says the Apostle Paul, holy, self-controlled, lovers of the good. We need to value those traits in people and then we need to be able to model that to the world, don't we? The world, in Titus's day, the world was hanging out to see Christians live the genuine life and that's why Paul has written this letter to Titus. It's in order that the world can see who Jesus is. And in our world today, that is exactly the same purpose of the church and of church leadership, that we might show the world what Jesus is like, not what 
organisational management is like, but what Jesus is like. And so, so many times we've been disappointed, haven't we, with church leaders who have shown themselves to be immoral, <coughs> pedophiles, people with little integrity. And that is not just a tragedy, it's actually bringing dishonour to the name of God. And we cringe every time we see these kind of Christian leaders paraded in the media having done some other immoral or unethical act. False leadership in the church needs to be identified. Titus is to do this. It's not an easy thing to do, but Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16, these false leaders profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for any good work. You see, how do we recognise them? By their works. They say that they know God, they profess to know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They deny him by their works. So the Apostle Paul charges Titus to stand against these illegitimate leaders, these false leaders, to rebuke them sharply, Paul says. Paul encourages Titus to teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. And that teaching, he then follows with a whole string of behaviours. It's interesting, isn't it? Titus, but for you, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Wouldn't you expect him to say, well, you've got to believe in the Trinity, you've got to believe in the Incarnation, you've got to believe in the Virgin Birth, all these things. Isn't that what sound doctrine is? Paul says sound doctrine is consistent with behaviour. Older men, he says, be dignified, self-controlled, uh, sound in your faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Younger men and younger women, behave, slaves behave. You, uh, the list is there in, in the start of chapter 2. And in all these things, the instructions are to behave as a Christian, living the truth not just knowing, understanding or hearing the truth, living the truth. It is right behaviour that gives evidence of sound doctrine. These instructions are all about behaviour. And the goal of this behaviour is so that no one outside the church will have any grounds to slander Jesus Christ. The new Christians in, on the island of Crete are to live lives that adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. After this list to all of these uh, different groups of people in chapter 2 verse 10, Titus says um, they should do all this so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. You and I can make God look beautiful. 
we can make him look very ugly if we, if we go the wrong way. But our behaviour reflects on our Saviour and we can actually adorn the doctrine of God, adorn the person of God, who God is. The truth of who God is is seen as we behave in godly ways. But where do we get the ability and the power to do what is right? Because we all want to do what is right, don't we? Where do we get the ability and the power to do what is right? No one's perfect, not even the greatest church leaders. We all have flaws. But we have the desire to do what is right. That is the mark of a Christian, to have the desire to do what is right. In chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, Paul gives this, what is a very uh, tight summary of, of how all these things hold together. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared in human flesh. It is Jesus Christ who embodies the grace of God. It's not like the grace of God has somehow kind of wafts down onto us and, um, you know, we, we, we see the grace of Jesus Christ we see the grace of God in the life of Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus who has extended that grace to us by changing our nature, by changing who we are. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the hope the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Jesus has redeemed us. We said that last week, we say that every week. Jesus has done what is necessary to save us. But in that redemption, and think how, how powerful this is, where he mentions that redemption right after he's been talking about behaviour of slaves who are all hoping to be redeemed. All the slaves were hoping to be redeemed, that someone would pay the price for them to set them free. That is what Jesus has done for us. But in that redemption, his grace has been poured into us so that we are now able to live lives of self-control. Because we are a brand new person. The grace of God transforms us. It is the grace of God that gives us the desire to do what is good. And it is the grace of God that gives us the power to do what is good. As we uh, increase the desire, so God will increase the power. And we will add to God's grace our own uh, desires to do what is good, to live the godly life. We will follow patterns that are going to lead us into godliness. Notice that, that Jesus is called the grace of God, but he is also called God himself. We read that we're waiting for the, the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is both God and Saviour. That is why he can transform us to be people whose focus is godliness and righteousness, our new life in Christ. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. He is God, our Saviour. And he teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and yes to self-controlled, upright and godly lives. The transformed life by the grace of God. I want to ask you, what do you need to say no to in your life? Sin. What specific sin? See, each of us may have certain things and usually the ones that we need to say no to the most are the ones that we cover and hide and, and, uh, or don't recognise. There's plenty of lists here that, that um, Paul gives to Titus of what we're to say no to. He says this is, these are what to, to be avoided. Arrogance, thinking uh, highly of yourselves, insubordinates, quick-tempered, greedy, liars, lazy, empty talkers, dot, 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 you can add your own, as I can add my own. We are to say no. The grace of God gives us the strength and the desire to say no to ungodliness. But then, he says, we are to say yes to other things. That there is a godliness that includes behaviours that we are to pursue. And again, there are, there are lists that, that Paul gives and they're, uh, they're not complete lists by any means. But they are significant things, aren't they? Like being hospitable, being self-controlled, being disciplined, upright, holy, being a lover of the, of the good, being sound in your faith. And again, dot, 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 we add our own um, things that, that we recognise that we need to do in our context to show the good that Jesus is producing in us. This is possible because of the grace of Jesus Christ. It is only possible because of the grace of Jesus Christ. But we are called to cooperate, to keep in step with God's Spirit as we say no to certain things in our life and yes to others. Here's a little statement that I um, read somewhere that's that is very um, true and succinct and powerful. It says, The grace of God means that all of life finds its deepest meaning when lived in the conscious awareness of God's loving care and presence. Let me read that again. The grace of God, if you have the grace of God, it means that all of your life will find its deepest meaning when lived in the conscious awareness of God's loving care and presence. That is what is available to us through the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. So I ask you again, do you want to be a church that is full of people eager to do what is right? Yes. That is what our mission statement says. We want to uh, see disciples for life. We want to see people who are growing uh, and eager to, to live the godly 
uh, righteous life for the whole of their lives. And that is the direction in which we are moving and we want to continue to do that. So we need to remind each other the new life that we live in the grace of God far outweighs any other joys or satisfactions offered by the world. This is where we slip down, isn't it? Where we actually think that the world has more to offer, that we need to, to trust and, and, and seek to establish our own name and our own confidence rather than being convinced that God has all that is necessary for us. All the, the uh, grace of God outweighs all other joys and satisfactions. And in the end, it leads us to eternal life with our Lord and Saviour. So just as Paul said to Titus in chapter 2, verse 7, be a model of good works, so that is what he calls on all Christians and for us here this morning. If we are eager to be a part of a church that is full of people who want to do what is right, then we need to be passionate about growing in godliness, zealous, uh, Paul says, for good works, and we need to encourage each other as we head in this direction. So let me pray. God our Father, we thank you, Lord, that in your great love and mercy you have redeemed us. You have brought us back by your grace. You have restored us as your children. And Lord, we pray that we will not fall for the world's lies, that we might seek and find any better life outside of, of you and, and of your calling to godliness. Lord, we long to be that church which is full of people who are eager to do your will. So Lord, make, make it be me. Make it be us as we long to see your kingdom and your glory. Amen.